going to be looking at the uh, fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians today, so if you want to turn there. I have to admit that before I decided to preach through uh, 1 Corinthians, there were a number of passages that gave me pause, um, and this is one of them. In the last four chapters, Paul has addressed Corinthian distortions of the gospel, the church, the leaders, um, and themselves, but now he's turning into a bit even more uncomfortable territory, you might even say taboo. In chapter 5, Paul is addressing the case of the incestuous man. And that can elicit quite a number of responses in us. Revulsion, do we have to talk about this, how did this get in, and others. Just remind you that we really need to let Paul's letter, which he meant to be read aloud to the whole church in Corinth, stand. And also the questions that come along with that. Why is this in the Bible, and what does this have to do with me? And so I just encourage you to try to ease some of your defenses and reflect openly on what God has inspired for our hearing today. Let's look at God's Word now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit and in as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, thank you for gathering us together today to hear your word. Thank you for this, your word, and we pray, Lord, 
for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it, to apply it, and that you might use this text, this passage this morning to make us more aware, more in love with our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. And so why is this here? And what does the incestuous man have to do with us? Are we supposed to see our own sins, perhaps, in this man's sins? Is, is Paul trying to teach us just about how, how lewd and repulsive our own stuff is? Well, our own sin is really bad. It's, it's far worse than we know, but that doesn't seem to be Paul's point here. He clearly distinguishes between his dealings with the man and the Corinthians. We're not supposed to read ourselves as one and the same. It also doesn't appear to be a kind of case law. This is how you handle incidents of incest in the church. It's church discipline for sure, but Paul's treatment doesn't have the same formulaic quality that Jesus uses in Matthew 18. In that case, Jesus was prescribing a procedure that he meant for universal application. Paul instead seems to be teaching us a principle. He's teaching us something about the purity of the church and our part in maintaining it. And that happens to be a subject that the church still has a lot of trouble with today. In liberal circles, there's the likes of the Crystal Cathedral and Joel Osteen. This is that view that says there's no tent big enough to hold the saints of God, and likewise there's no mountain high enough, no ocean wide enough, and no difference big enough to divide our fellowship. It's that Rob Bellion concept of the love of God that cannot tolerate the justice of God. On the other extreme, there's that holy rolling ark kind of view. It's the one that's Sometimes attributed to Reformed Christians, it's captured in that sad phrase, the frozen chosen. It says that by virtue of God's sovereign election, Reformed Christians were born in, they stay in, so they're good, you're not too bad. It's not so dissimilar from the view of some Baptists, when all that seems to matter on the whole spiritual horizon is your conversion date. When did you raise your hand, or when did you say that sinner's prayer? Because after that, you're all set. You've arrived. No growth required. And then, not to leave anyone out here, there's, of course, that camp that abstains altogether. All of that stuff, that wacky stuff, that's the reason I'm non-denominational. Or better, it's the reason I don't even bother joining a church, And so do you feel any toes being stepped on? You see, at the root of each of these is how we understand the purity of the church and our part in maintaining it. And so what does Paul say? Well, we can see Paul's answer and how he handles the incestuous man. First, he speaks to the problem and the solution. Second, the justification. And third, the application. So let's look at these in turn. First, the problem and solution. Verse 1 through 2a says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you 
are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? There's two main problems here. The first is that there is impurity in the church. There's a man in the midst of the Corinthian congregation that is practicing, ongoing, such a gross and perverse form of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated in the pagan culture that surrounds them. Now, now that, that should shock us. You see, um, that's saying a lot in Corinth. The city of Corinth was, uh, you could put it, the sex capital of the ancient world. Its patron deity was Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and fertility. There were over a thousand, over a thousand slaves employed to maintain the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth. And so you can almost sense Paul's shock here. It's as if Paul is reluctant to let this activity that is so scandalous, even in such a sex-rich culture, to slip from his lips. He says, for a man has his father's wife. Now, for the sake of the kids, I'm going to forgo a detailed explanation of exactly what that means, but this is a repugnant sin. It's something that you don't want to let slip from your mouth, that it, it exists. And yet, that's not even Paul's biggest problem here. You see, Paul's comments aren't directed at the man, but the Corinthians. You see, what's, what's so beyond belief for Paul, even more than what the man has done, is that despite the culture's problem with this, the Corinthians don't have a problem with this. As Paul exclaims in that can-it-be kind of way, and you are arrogant? And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Not only are, are they tolerating this man's blatant, ongoing, unrepentant sin in their midst, nor hiding it, nor embarrassed by it, mourning, but they're actually boasting about it. He even imagined Paul's shock at first hearing the news. Here's the church he planted only a couple of years ago, and now they're boasting in a perversion that has gained so much attention that the news of it has spread all the way across the sea to him in Ephesus. It was bad enough that he had to address their importing the human wisdom and the false gospels of the world into their midst, but now he actually has to address their infecting the world with even greater wickedness than the world had by itself. God's people, the light of the world... Not so here. And so the problems then are twofold. On the one hand, there's impurity in the church, and then on the other, the church isn't doing anything about it. And so what's the solution? Paul says, verse 2b, let him who has done this be removed from among you. The answer is church discipline, and specifically removal or excommunication. And so why? Point to the justification for removal. Paul continues in verse 3 through 5. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and it is as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
And so why remove the unrepentant man from among you? Well, firstly, firstly, because it is for his benefit. After all else fails, the hope of excommunication is not destruction, but recovery. And that's really good news. It's not how we normally think about it. Even in that most extreme form of church discipline, even in that worst place of an arrogant refusal to humble yourself and return to the Lord, removal from the church and thereby handing someone over into the hands of Satan is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And therefore, even excommunication has a remedial purpose. Isn't our Lord gracious? It's amazing. We can go that far, be that lost, and the, and the Lord still wants us back. And so this is for the good of wandering saints. But secondly, it is also for the good of those who are left. As Paul explains in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? I just want us to, to sort of sink ourselves into this metaphor for a minute. It teaches us quite a lot about the character of sin. We live in a world today in which to each his own is a basic law of the universe. If someone's sin doesn't hurt me, then it's supposed to be okay with me. But that's not a new way of looking at the world. The Roman Empire was significantly more pluralistic and tolerant than we are today in many respects. And so this man's sin was his thing for his own gain and loss. And so what right did anyone have to say anything about it? Exercising personal freedom, breaking cultural barriers, that's a virtuous thing, right? And if there's no secondhand smoke from this cigarette, then, then why not let him be? Have you heard the argument? It's obviously not how Paul sees it. As one commentator says, Paul conceives of this man's sin as thoroughly destructive, not just of his own person and standing before God, but of the church of God with which he is associated. And so just like leaven in a lump of dough, unrepentant sin is such a powerful contagion that it can infect the whole body of Christ. In other words, not only does this cigarette create secondhand smoke, but it creates other smokers. To make matters even worse, it's disproportionately powerful. It only takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. It only takes a little smoke to turn everyone into a smoker. And, and those are the kind of toxic side effects that should, that should just freak us out. And yet, it doesn't seem to alarm the Corinthians at all. Not only were they tolerating his ongoing sin in their midst, but they were encouraging him to the point of boasting about it. Can you imagine the impact of such a thing on a church? Imagine a session boasting in the ongoing adultery of a pastor, the regular abuse of a wife by her husband, the routine gossip of one member about other members. It's like pouring gas on the worst kind of fire. Their boasting is a catalyst for the propagation of exactly what means to destroy them. 
And so Paul begins this section quite appropriately and simply, your boasting is not good. And then, do you not know? Do you not know? It's the very same words he used in chapter 3, and he means for them to connect the impact of what they're doing here to exactly what he warned against there. In chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said, Do you not know? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And so what does the reconnection here mean? It means, do you not know that your toleration of this man's blatant, unrepentant sin could destroy God's church? You're you're an accessory to destruction. And so what are you thinking? Are you waiting for God to come down and destroy you himself? And so for the man's sake, as well as there, Paul again commands them to remove this man. He says, verse 7, cleanse out, imperative, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Remove that contagion of impurity so that you may become, future tense, a new, unleavened, pure lump. And that makes sense. The church has a part to play in maintaining its purity. But in the very same breath, Paul also says these words, as you really are unleavened. And that, if we we give some thought to that, is really quite a stunning statement. It makes sense that by removing impurity from the church, the church might become increasingly pure. Right? But, but how is it that we are presently, right now, truly, already the new, unleavened, and pure lump? And why does Paul remind us of that? The answer to both is in verse 7. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, Christ is the hinge for Paul upon which our present and our future purity turns. Think about what the Passover recalls. Paul's reminding them of how God purified a people for himself in Egypt. As a result of the blood of the Lamb and only the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death passes over the Israelite homes and thereby cleanses a people for himself out of Egypt. And in the same way, In the sacrifice of Christ, our our true and ultimate Passover lamb, Christians, including even the Corinthians, have now already been cleansed and set apart from the leaven of the world. They are not what they once were. And as a result, Paul tells them they cannot continue as they once were. That's why this man, who is continuing in blatant, unrepentant sin, can have no part with them. They can't associate with him. They are the new, holy, set-apart, pure people of God. And so Paul urges them, verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul gives us here what the purity of the church looks like and how it is maintained. 
Because of Christ, the church is already and right now a new unleavened and pure lump in the sight of God. And yet, at the same time, at the same time, it is not there yet. Note that Paul doesn't contrast malice and evil with righteousness and goodness. Perfect obedience. You see, that's what we'd expect here. Instead, he says, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, while Christ has already declared us holy and righteous, new, pure, and unleavened lump, he is still completing that work in us. And that means the purity of the church in this time is not reflected in our perfect righteousness and goodness, but in our sincerity and truth. We are yet really, truly struggling and stumbling sinners, and we're not supposed to pretend like that's not true. Instead, acknowledging that it is, we're to strive to walk in repentance and dependence on Christ in sincerity and truth. And so, how does this affect how we relate to unrepentant sinners? That's where Paul goes next. Point three, application. Verse 9 and following, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That's the important piece. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greedy or is an idolater, reviled, uh, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Purge the evil person from among you. And so Paul gives us here two categories of unrepentant sinners. There are those outside the church, the ones in the world, and then there's the unrepentant sinners inside the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the case of those outside the church, Paul absolves us of responsibility. He says Christians have to associate with them. An unrepentant sinner is the very definition of what it means to be in the world. Of the world, sorry. There's no other category of people out there. And therefore, to do otherwise would require, as Paul puts it here, to go out of the world. It's, of course, exactly opposite of what Jesus has called his disciples to do. He said, go, meaning into the world. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. In other words, not only are we not to retreat from the world, but we have a mandate from Christ to go into it. Yet at the same time, we are very clearly not to be of it. Are we repentant? See, that's the, the distinction, the dividing line that Paul makes here. Since we have been cleansed from the world to walk in sincerity and truth, we cannot associate with a brother who claims Christ but is continuing in blatant, unrepentant sin. And therefore, Paul tells the Corinthians that they bear a responsibility, not to those outside, but to those inside. And that call is to maintain the purity of the church, and if need be, even to the point of purging the evil person from among them. That's all hard stuff. So what do we take away from this? Well, again, Paul is teaching us something not just about the case of the incestuous man, but about the purity of Christ's church and our part in maintaining it. 
The pure body of Christ is neither a body of pure arrived saints who no longer struggle with sin, nor a body in which everyone is accepted no matter what, but instead the pure body of Christ is pure because of the sacrifice of Christ and its purity is evidenced by his people's sincere and true dependence on him and life of repenting to him. So what does that mean? Very simply, the pure body of Christ is a body of repenting saints. The pure body of Christ is a body of repenting saints. And that's what we need to take away from here. Just look around you. You know, we sometimes clean up all right on Sunday, sometimes not so well. I greet, so I get to see. But Christ's church is Christ's church outside of service times too. We are not the crystal cathedral or the frozen chosen. Neither our purity nor our purification is found in preserving the illusion of personal righteousness. Nor is it found in in preserving the time stamp of our first sinner's prayer, but in the precious blood of Christ who cleansed us and is still cleansing the leaven from our souls. And that means on this side of heaven, Christ's pure church looks like a body of repenting saints who are bold enough in Christ to confess the truth about themselves and humble enough because of Christ to turn to Him again and again and again and again for the forgiveness of their sins. And so my question to you is, how are you looking at Christ's pure church today? Are you turning a blind eye to the blatant, unrepentant sinner in your midst? You might think that you're doing him a kindness, but Paul tells us here that you're hurting both him and the church. Are you looking down on the stumbling brother who happened to confess the weakness of his own sin in your midst? Well, perhaps you're not being honest enough about yourself, and I'd suggest Look a little more honestly at yourself in the mirror. It can do wonders for your humility. You see, the real pure body of Christ is a body of sincere and honest, repenting sinners. So first, the question, is that you? Are you a repenting sinner? Have you turned to Christ? If it's not, then make today that day, the day that you turn to Him and that you join them. The whole host of heaven, the Bible tells us, actually rejoices at every sinner that turns and receives Christ. It's the very reason he came. And so make today, make today that day that Christ in the heavens rejoice about you. Wouldn't that be be awesome? Secondly, how do you look at Christ's saints? You see, our job, it's neither to ignore them or condemn them. But as Paul tells us, and even the Corinthians, even the Corinthians, our job is to celebrate with them. These are the real brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the real bride of Christ that has been cleansed and purchased with his blood. And so brothers and sisters, let's commit to grow here. We need to grow here. We like our pretty face Sundays, but it's not not real. Who do we think we're fooling? 
We live in a Photoshop, selfie-centric world, but that's not what the church is. And so let's not get caught up in trying to preserve the illusion of self-righteousness, but focus instead on being sincere and honest with one another. And that gives a new definition to hypocrisy. Instead of pretending, let's be honest with Christ and one another. Let's be honest about our continuing struggles with sin. And then let's encourage one another sympathetically and empathetically because we're walking the same walk in our striving in faith and repentance. Because this is what the real pure church of Christ is supposed to look like. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, we love the praise of man. We fear their disapproval. And that is so often, Lord, because they are so big in our eyes and you are so small and we are so big in our eyes and you are so small and so Lord we we pray that you would write our vision that you would give us a glorious awesome vision of of Christ our Savior that you would give us a right biblical Christian humility and thereby Lord a deep overwhelming love for Christ and for his people such that we can be honest and sincere and true with one another and you and encourage one another and celebrate together, Lord, that you have called us to be your saints and you are right now doing your work of purifying us and you have already declared us holy and righteous and awesome and cleansed and perfect in your sight. And so, Lord, please help us to grow into that. By your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.